From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. It's a critical moment in the national spotlight. Now what's next for John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett after their first presidential debate? Then, President Trump is working on another nuclear summit with North Korea. But how productive will it actually be? Colorado Senator Cory Gardner chairs the subcommittee focused on North Korea's nuclear threat. I don't understand what a third summit would do other than stall and give Kim Jong-un more time to continue to flaunt international and U.S. law. We'll get perspective from CPR's Dan Voice just back from the Korean Peninsula. Plus, spring has sprung. Now summer's here, we're answering your questions about what that means for your garden and remembering a Colorado music icon. Many times I've been out in the cold, lonely world My heart full of sorrow and pain and I sing an old familiar song of the place where I belong And my mind starts to think of home again This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The national coverage of last night's Democratic presidential debate focused on a few names, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders. But of course, it was also the night Colorado's two candidates took the stage. Let's hear a bit from them, starting with the former governor, John Hickenlooper, who continued to argue that the party needs moderation in some of its most liberal positions. The bottom line is, if we don't clearly define that we are not socialists, the Republicans are going to come at us every way they can and, def- and call us socialists. And if you look at the Green New Deal, which I admire the sense of urgency and how important it is to do climate change. I'm a scientist. But we can't promise every American a government job. If you want to get universal health care coverage, I believe that health care is a right and not a privilege. But you can't expect to eliminate private insurance for 180 million people, many of whom who don't want to give it up. Senator Michael Bennett was positioned across the stage from Hickenlooper. He took opportunities during the night to make several direct jabs at President Trump. We have to restore uh, our democracy at home. The rest of the world is looking for us for leadership. We have a president who doesn't believe in the rule of law. He doesn't believe in freedom of the press. He doesn't believe in independent judiciary. He believes in the corruption that he's brought to Washington, D.C. And that is what we have to change. And that's why everybody is up here tonight. And I appreciate the fact that they're up here for that reason. Let's talk about Bennett, Higginlooper, and all the other people who were on the debate stage last night with two reporters who have been following their presidential ambitions, CPR's Anthony Cotton and Benta Berkland. I want to start with the calculation that NPR made about how long each candidate got to speak when they tallied it up. Bennett got eight minutes and four seconds, Higginlooper a little less than five minutes. Each of you from watching the debate, did anything they said in the time stand out? I think the consensus is Hickenlooper and Bennett generally did okay. They didn't make major mistakes or have awkward moments. Hickenlooper did get a cheer from the crowd for criticizing family separations at the border. And Bennett got a chance to argue against the creation of a single-payer health care system. But this debate will certainly be remembered for the interactions between the highest-profile candidates like Biden and Harris, not for anything Hickenlooper or Bennett said. I think... One really, Hickenlooper was really intent on telling the nation about some of the things he's done in Colorado. And one really interesting moment for me came when South, when Buttigieg lamented about the tension and anguish in his town over the recent shooting of a black man by a white police officer. That gave Hickenlooper the chance to talk about reforms he made as Denver mayor 
uh, following the shooting death of Paul Childs, a developmentally disabled 15-year-old who was killed by police in 2003. Of course, police shootings haven't been eradicated in Denver or in Colorado, and Buttigieg was clearly frustrated talking about that, you know, the idea of what to do with police and, and the African-American community. And you both reported that the candidates needed to use this debate to try to stand out from the rest of the pack and from each other. Benta, do you think that they were able to achieve that goal? Political watchers told me that neither candidate really did enough to move the needle in a significant way when it comes to their low poll numbers and boosting their campaigns. Here's Seth Maskett. He's a political science professor at the University of Denver. Bennett got in a few good moments. He definitely got across his points about some of his political reforms. He got in some pretty solid critiques of President Trump. Those seem to get some support from the audience. In many ways, I I think Hickenlooper had a a bit less memorable of a performance. So he was kind of neither inside nor outside and I think had a harder time connecting. You know, one side note, during the second debate, according to trends from Google, Hickenlooper and Bennett were the least searched candidates. And near the end of the night, one of the New York Times reporters quipped, Only so much room for two Wesleyan grads from Colorado. (laughs) In recent weeks, Hickenlooper has tried to stake out territory for himself as an aggressively moderate option in the field. Was that on display last night? On the topic of climate change, Hickenlooper was asked about the idea of working with oil and gas to try to craft new policies. And Hickenlooper has said in the past he'd be willing to do that. Last night saying every business shouldn't be demonized. And that drew some rebukes from the far left. Actor Mark Ruffalo, who plays the Hulk in the Avengers movies, particularly came down hard on that idea in a tweet, you know, saying that fracking caused Hickenlooper to sell out Colorado. And I think a lot of people think this moderate stance may backfire for Hickenlooper. That's not necessarily where the party is right now. And Hickenlooper continues to cast himself as an unconventional politician who originally came from the private sector and likes to bring people together. Former state GOP chair Dick Wadhams doesn't think that's resonating. I don't think there's any room in the Democratic Party for John Hickenlooper's call for the party to reject socialism. I don't think anything demonstrates how far to the left the Democratic Party is going than when Senator Harris essentially accused Vice President Biden of being a right-wing racist. Anthony, you were at a progressive watch party. What did you hear from people there? A number of candidates, Kamala Harris, Buttigieg, drew noticeable reactions from the people there, favorable reactions. There were only smatterings of polite applause for Bennett in particular and for Hickenlooper. This is Scott Dupree of Denver. I am sorry, but I I didn't support and don't support either of them. Uh, I loved Hickenlooper as mayor of Denver, couldn't stand him as governor. Um, In terms of uh, Bennett, haven't liked him since the beginning. And I haven't seen him actually act on behalf of progressive ideals in Colorado. So who are they excited for? As was the case nationally, Harris was the clear winner last night. And Scott Dupree, who we just heard from, he supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, but said last night that it was time to move on. I think it's interesting and maybe a bit ironic that both Bennett and Hickenlooper wanted to use the, the, the debate to introduce themselves to people from all across the country. 
but many of the people at the watch party in Colorado found themselves drawn to the candidates who weren't from here and who they hadn't heard from before. This is Anne uh, English of Denver. I think what's hard is that you're more impressed with the people you don't know anything about or you don't know much about. You're like, wow, look at them. So for me, Kristen Gildebrand, I knew nothing about her. And so she was impressive. And Buddha Judge, I came into pretty negative because of his reaction to the shooting this weekend. And I think he had a really nice talk about it. And again, that was in reference to the shooting in South Bend earlier this month. One of the big questions Democratic voters are considering as they look at all of these options is who might be best suited to take on the president. Anthony, did you hear anything from people last night? I think the people there really shared the sentiment of the candidates on stage, that the main goal is to beat Trump. So there was a lot of, I don't really care which one it is, or I'll support whomever it is, as long as the Democrats are able to get the White House back. And Benta, you talked with a couple of Republican strategists. Did they come out of last night feeling worried for the president's chances next year or reassured? They felt pretty reassured and felt like Trump kind of won the debate in a way. And these are Republicans who do like some of Trump's policies but aren't necessarily strong supporters of the president. GOP strategist Tyler Sandberg was disappointed that Democrats didn't talk much about education reform in either debate. He also feels the field is veering too far left, which will make it tougher for any Democrat in a general election, especially when it comes to getting support from people who backed Trump but aren't ideological and are now open to a Democrat. And Sandberg thinks Senator Harris's attacks on Vice President Biden could make the current frontrunner more vulnerable. I thought Joe Biden was going to collapse under his own gas. I didn't realize that someone was going to go for the jugular and just tear his throat out. And she did just a very powerful job of that. Benta, Anthony, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thanks. CPR reporters Binta Berkland and Anthony Cotton. The second Democratic presidential primary debate is at the end of July in Detroit, and both Bennett and Higginlooper are likely to have a place on the stage once again. President Trump is in Japan today for the annual G20 summit of the world's largest economies. Before he returns to the United States, Trump is scheduled to fly to Seoul to meet with South Korean President Moon Jae-in to discuss a potential third summit between Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Watching all this closely is Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. The Republican chairs the subcommittee focused on the North Korean nuclear threat. He does not think a third summit is a good idea, and he wasn't a big fan of the last two either. Joining us to talk about Gardner's role in North Korea policy is CPR's Dan Boyce, who recently returned from a journalism exchange to the Korean Peninsula. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Avery. Give us a sense of Gardner's role in the Senate when it comes to North Korea. Well, uh, he's one of the top congressional authorities on North Korea and their nuclear program. As you mentioned, he's the chair of the, this is a bit of a mouthful, the Senate Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy. That includes North Korea. He also authored a piece of legislation called the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Act. And, And this is the first time Congress imposed standalone mandatory sanctions on the North. And Gardner says that this set the stage for shifting from the Obama era strategy of so called uh, strategic patience to the early Trump doctrine of maximum pressure. And pressure is really Gardner's focus. 
you ratchet up sanctions, you be really hawkish, you cripple the North in every way possible, so they have to come to the table and agree to give up their nuclear ambitions entirely. The president said at the last summit that he was looking for a grand bargain to get North Korea to drop its nuclear program. That didn't happen, but that's what Gardner wants, too. Why is Gardner opposed to a third summit? I spoke with Gardner this week about this, and uh, he basically says those first two summits were just too full of unfulfilled promises. I don't understand what a third summit would do other than stall and give Kim Jong-un more time to continue to flaunt international and U.S. law. Gardner says he doesn't understand why the president would want to meet again with the person he says hasn't changed a single bit since the first summit. So Gardner disagrees with the president's approach to North Korea. Well, I asked him a couple times about that, and he didn't answer uh, directly other than to say he he did think it was important to move beyond uh, what he called papered diplomacy. But he really he walked a fine line there. So his views on at least how to communicate with North Korea are clearly different from Trump's. Remember, Trump, he brags about his positive personal relationship with Kim. He's even said they're in love, that they exchange beautiful letters. Gardner, he's careful not to be too negative about the president. That probably wouldn't be too advantageous for Gardner, also being a Republican. But uh, I will go ahead and let me read a quote from Gardner from a Fox News op-ed. This was published in the run-up to the second summit this February. Gardner says, quote, let us not forget that North Korea remains the world's leading human rights abuser, with an estimated 100,000 people still languishing in political concentration camps. There can be no moral equivalency between brutal dictatorships and free societies that seek to stop their abuses. So tell me more about what Gardner thinks about the situation in North Korea right now. Well, he's actually a little bit frustrated. He, he's concerned the world is moving away from the maximum pressure strategy. He points out both Russia and China have been reducing sanctions, and even the U.S. has been granting more waivers since those first summits. He wants to see a return to that more hardline approach that he favors. Dan, you were recently in South Korea on a journalism exchange program partially funded by the U.S. government. What views did you hear on the tensions right now? Yeah, so the organization that sent me is the Honolulu-based East-West Center. And I do want to say, despite uh, the government funding, they do have a stellar reputation for being impartial. Uh, But back to the tensions, what surprised me is of all the meetings we had with organizations, political government figures across the political spectrum, that almost everyone, almost to a person, said President Trump's summits with North Korea have been a good thing. There were varying degrees of skepticism about how it all might turn out in the end and, you know, varying degrees of approval of Trump's overall demeanor. But the basic sentiment was, uh, hey, we, South Korea, a couple years ago, we were talking about another war and now we are actively talking about peace. And this was a journalism exchange program. What did the South Korean journalists who went to the U.S. think? Did they agree with the views you heard on the peninsula? I would say I, I did not notice a dramatically different perspective from them. I, again, there there were certainly different differences in opinion about Mr. Trump's uh, personality. But the, the overall consensus was generally the same, that the opening of the dialogue, the breaking of the ice, so to speak, has been an overall positive thing. So President Trump has been pushing for a grand bargain and a complete lifting of U.S. sanctions in return for complete North Korean denuclearization. But the Korean leaders, both North and South, have been pushing to take this step by step, right? Correct. Uh, So during the Hanoi summit, which was the second one, uh, Kim Jong-un 
offered to dismantle what's considered North Korea's most important nuclear facility, the Yongbyon complex, in exchange for expansive sanctions relief. And President Moon of South Korea has said that he thinks this would push the North's denuclearization to an irreversible stage if it could be verified, that there's no going back from that. It, As an aside, Cory Gardner disagrees with, with that assumption. Uh, but we spoke with one of President Moon's top advisors on foreign affairs during my exchange. This is a man named Chung In Moon, no relation to the president. But he says the sanctions imposed by the U.S. are hurting regular people in the North. Koreans, and that relaxing those sanctions could be an important move toward helping them. He basically says, you, you know, you can't raise human rights with North Korea. If you do, they won't listen to you, to you and you'll blow it. You have to earn the trust through sanctions relief, and the hope is that you open up the economy and that that would naturally pressure human rights improvements, and then you can address those human rights issues. Now, this differs very widely from Gardner's position. He says, Removing the North's nuclear capability and improving the country's human rights record got to go hand in hand. We cannot simply say that if he were to get rid of nuclear programs, that's enough. He's got to comply with international law. His violation of, of human rights is also a matter of international law. And again, he, he thinks the only path to success here with North Korea is a return to that maximum pressure model. And Dan, today's situation on the peninsula it dates all the way back to the Korean War. Did you get a sense from this trip of how that conflict is viewed over there now? Here in the United States, you often hear the Korean War referred to as the Forgotten War. Of course, over there, that's not the case. It's still omnipresent. Uh, but millions of Americans served in that war. We had 100,000 injured and nearly 40,000 Americans died in Korea. Just to give a little bit of perspective, 4,400 soldiers died in the most recent Iraq war. The United States is the biggest reason, or at least the biggest foreign reason, that the country of South Korea exists today, that it's been able to build a strong functioning democracy and a robust capitalist economy. And that fact is not lost on Koreans. And there's an affection and a warmth toward the United States that that I haven't actually seen in, in other foreign countries I've been to. You got a chance to visit the demilitarized zone between the two countries. What was that like? It was a strange experience. So this is hollowed ground, right? This strip of land between the two countries. It's really a mass grave. There are tens of thousands of bodies of North and South Korean soldiers that remain on that land. And yet when you go through the the sort of traditional tourist experience of the demilitarized zone... It, it, there's a strange kind of tone contrasting problem, almost a tone deafness, because you'll look to one side and you'll see a two-story poster of two Koreans crying. And then from standing in the exact same spot, you'll look to the right and you'll see an ice cream stand and a carnival and one of those Viking ship rides that swings like it's on a pendulum. You know, you can buy DMZ air fresheners and chocolate bars and a piece of certified DMZ barbed wire. You could take a picture with a mannequin of a South Korean soldier, you know, woo. And I, I think to all of us visiting, it just sort of seemed um, sort of out of place with what I think Americans would traditionally consider to be something like a solemn experience. Mm. And uh, while I, I, I still do have some time here, I, I do want to talk a little bit about reunification. Um, you know, so there, there are interesting reflections uh, that there are basically there are three 
Korean generations. We heard this several times. The oldest generation is uh, sort of has still has animosity toward the North. Uh, the middle generation, the baby boomers, they have this positivity that they can um, bring the North and South back together. Mm-hmm. And the youngest generation just doesn't seem to care about it one way or the other. Dan, thank you for being here. CPR's Dan Boyce, who just returned from a journalism exchange to the Korean Peninsula, talking to us about Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner's role in North Korean diplomacy. Senator Gardner is running for re-election next year. RTD has struggled for years to hire and retain the people who run its buses and trains. It finally says it's making progress there, but the agency is still having trouble finding enough people to do repairs and get buses back out on the street. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner has the story. Just off the South Platte River in North Denver, RTD's broken down buses are reborn. Steve Gieske runs this giant facility. Well, this is our main body shop. Um, You're seeing a lot of different buses in different stages of uh, repair. One bus had its front end smashed in by an SUV. So we had to cut the whole front cap off, uh, the whole driver's area, the whole dash is out, and we're rebuilding all of that structure. And when this bus is done, you won't be able to tell it was in an accident. It's a massive project that'll take eight months. But Gieske says in the end, it'll save RTD money. Versus uh, throwing away essentially a $500,000 bus, we're able to put $100,000 into it, fix it, and put it back in service. But there's a backlog of projects like this. Gieske has only about half of the 35 body repair workers he needs, and he's short about 40 mechanics too. That means some buses are back on the street before every ding and scrape is buffed out. And some work is done by pricier contractors. We're just finding it really, really hard to find qualified people. And the private sector is hiring away a lot of them. Private body shop workers can make more money, especially after a hailstorm. And there have been a lot of those in Colorado in recent years. Some mechanics offer other theories, including RTD's ban on marijuana consumption. Michael Vaughn is a technical trainer at RTD. He says while most body shop workers can specialize in one or two things, RTD's employees need to know how to do pretty much everything from welding to painting. There's a lot of aspects that people don't see, um, all the time and sweat that goes into doing what we do, from an accident all the way up to the final product of polishing, basically. It's a lot of work, but Vaughn says when he's out trying to recruit new employees, he tells them there's a reward at the end, when you see a shiny bus out on the street and you're the one that fixed it. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. We're just past solstice, and the summer's long days are calling us into the outdoors and into the garden. But are you wondering what to do now that the spring tulips have faded? Are Japanese beetles bugging you? Or is bindweed a bummer? It's time to get your gardening questions answered by CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthoud. Hi, Lonnie. Hi, thanks for having me back. Glad to have you here. Once again, we asked our listeners to send in their gardening questions, and some of them told us that they have this ongoing feud with a particular plant. Hi, this is Johnny Rotherham from the Athma Park neighborhood in Denver, and my backyard is filled with creeping bindweed. Is there anything I can plant that will control the spread of bindweed so I don't have to go out and rip it up every day? Thanks. That's such a great question. Bindweed is a noxious weed. It was imported from northern, northeastern Europe, and it gives all of us fits. 
it is a plant where you have to think about your goal is going to be mitigation, not eradication. Because if you want to go for true eradication, you're going to be pretty much digging to the center of the earth to get the roots out and using a lot of chemicals. But with a multi-pronged approach, including planting some great ground covers, you can help reduce the spread of the bindweed and reduce its strength so that eventually it will peter out a bit. So some of the plants that you can use which will outcompete it would be the delispermas or ice plants, which are these great, they're very low-growing, succulent with these fantastic colored flowers, really bright, almost shimmery looking, really fascinating little plants. And we have a carpet pincushion flower that has a beautiful pink, um, it's got a pink flower head and then this very feathery seed head that's very interesting. These are both for sun. And of course, bindweed mostly is in the sun. So I'm assuming that your listeners in the sun as well. But um, we've got some silver heels whorehound, it's called. It's a nice, uh, somewhat taller ground cover, maybe up to eight inches tall with a indistinct flower, but a really pretty foliage. And these are all in the plant select program as well, which has been tested here in Denver. You can also use some grasses that form runners instead of clumps, like our native buffalo grass. None of these are going to fully get rid of the bindweed where they are planted. However, they will reduce the amount significantly, and then you can easily pull it up. So you've got planting, you have pulling, which we all will have to do. Mulch, also a good thick layer of mulch will help keep the bindweed down. And we have some biocontrols. You can go onto the online and Google Colorado request a bug. And <laughs> I know. And Request a Bug goes over to our Insectarium and Palisades where they breed this bindweed mite, which is native to the parts of the world where bindweed is originally from. It doesn't affect any other plants, but it does affect bindweed. The caveat being it likes very dry um, gardens. So if you're in an irrigated garden, the bindweed mite will not work so well. But it, it is another option. And then, of course, there's targeted spraying of herbicides, if you're comfortable with that. And we have some good fact sheets on that on the CSU Extension website. Wow. And actually ordering a bug, that's sort of counterintuitive, um, but sounds so interesting. And that actually leads to our next question from a listener um, about a backyard beetle. Hi, my name is Mark Cavanaugh. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I have a question about the Japanese beetle. The beetle has come into our neighborhoods in and around Denver, and uh, we're having a hard time figuring out how to combat them. Uh, I understand it, and we need sort of a team approach. My neighbors and I in Congress Park are talking a lot about this and would appreciate any help. A lot of conflicting information on the Internet about it. Thank you. Wow, so many good points there. And there is a lot of conflicting information. Um, the other part that I really like about this question is that they're working together as a group because honestly, Japanese beetle will require a kind of a community approach because they, if you control them in your yard, but your neighbor doesn't, they'll just come over to your yard. So if you've got a whole bunch of neighbors, at least you can create a sort of safe zone. But this bug is so much like bindweed. You're never going to get rid of it. Once it's here, and it is, we're not going to get rid of it. We are just going to reduce its numbers to the point where we can survive it, and our plants mostly can survive it. We can also look at plants that are less palatable to it, and that's going to be a lot of trial and error. Uh, we do know that it loves roses, but there are some roses that it doesn't seem to like at all. And Dr. Whitney Cranshop at CSU has done some studies on this. They're not published yet. So Japanese beetle, 
multi-pronged approach. We got to understand the life cycle of this insect. It starts off as a grub in our lawns, and then it becomes a beetle, comes out, feasts, and then it goes back to the lawns, leaves its eggs, they create larvae, and the whole cycle starts over again. Again, on the CSU Extension website, there's a great calendar that shows the life cycle of the insect and approximately what months everything happens in its life cycle within Colorado. Um, Right now, we should be starting to see emergence of beetles. So you've got your, once the beetles, once, let let me step back. When they're in the lawn, we can treat for grubs using either a beneficial nematode or using insecticides. What is a nematode? A nematode is a very hair-like worm. It's very, very small, and it infests the grub and then kills it. And that's that's actually a wonderful way to get rid of them, or not to get rid of them, but to reduce the number of grubs in our lawn. We've also got insecticides that are specific for grubs. And then once they've come out in their beetles, there's not a lot that affects them very well, but shaking them off into a soapy bucket of wa- a bucket of soapy water is effective. Obviously, we're going to kill those, but they just keep coming. They just keep coming, and it's it's very frustrating. So the other options that people have are what they call beetle traps. Now, the ones that you buy typically in a garden center or the box stores, they're going to be a smaller trap. They're very good for detecting the presence of beetles, letting you know when the beetles are starting to come out. But the problem is that they attract beetles. So as many as you trap, and it'll look like a million, you're going to attract even more to your yard. So you could be drawing them out of your neighbor's yard into your own. Exactly. It's very frustrating. But if you go to the University of Missouri website or you Google University of Missouri mass beetle traps... They have devised, and they have the plans for it. You can build your own for probably 30 bucks or less. It's in a trash can where you actually contain a significant number of these bugs, and you set up like a perimeter boundary, or you set up a central area where you can draw the bugs that isn't near anybody's garden and trap gazillions of them. That sounds horrifying to clean. Uh, Yeah, that I have never (laughs) thought about, but (laughs) it does sound like a horror show. So those are a couple of options. There are some insecticides for the adult stage. Um, Other than that, it's really, again, a multi-pronged approach, but I'm so glad to hear this community coming together and trying to make a concerted effort. Now, I want to get away from these ominous pests and weeds and go on to something brighter. Hi, this is Josh Montague from Denver, Colorado. I'd love some advice on backyard flowers that are bee and bird friendly, and ideally also low maintenance and low water. Thanks. That's a great question. We all want to support our bees and our wildlife, and doing it in a water-wise manner is perfect in Denver and Colorado in general. So a couple suggestions that I would have would be salvias, the various different flowering sages. Um, A lot of honeybees really like them. The flowers aren't quite big enough for the bumblebees, but for the bumblebees, we have penstemon, and they're in both of these plant categories. There are so many varieties. There are short ones, tall ones big ones. There's something to fit every garden. Now, they are both fairly sun-loving plants. For the earlier part of the year, we have poppies and catmint. And then the later part of the year, we can start thinking about the agastakis and asters. Agastaki is another name for hyssop. It's a, it's a lovely plant, nice, tall, beautiful flowers. Uh, we've got yarrow, both native and some of the um, hybridized versions that have some pretty colors, and coneflowers. So there's a couple of plant suggestions, but then we also have several shrubs that 
really do attract bees. First of all is the blue mist spirea. They just get covered in honeybees. And the budlia, which is also called butterfly bush, but it also attracts a lot of bees. Okay, let's switch to a deterrent. What if you don't want to attract animals like rabbits or deer? Uh, are there flowers that they are not going to eat? There are some that they they like less. Let's put it that way. If they have <laughs> nothing else to eat, they're going to eat something. But again, those salvias that I was talking about that have that really strong scent to their leaves and the agastakis also... Uh, Catmint is the other one. We just talked about those three for birds and bees, so they're great for our pollinators, but then they're less attractive to the rabbits and anything that you, when you go to buy your plants, if you rub the leaves between your fingers a little bit or ruffle them up and they are really pungent, lavender's another good one. Those seem to be left alone much better by the deer and the elk and the bunnies. Oh, interesting. So sort of stronger scent is less attractive. Typically, yeah. And fuzzy leaves. They don't like fuzzy leaves either. Huh. That is really interesting. Listener Robin Mendelson asked us about the best material to add to soil to help it retain water. Um, And they asked if it was peat or if something else could work. Well, peat is... Peat definitely helps your soils retain water. However, it's it's really not sustain, a sustainable product. It is taken from peat bogs. It's not renewable. Um, so we typically don't recommend peat. It is used in a lot of potting mixes. I'm assuming she's talking about planting in the ground. And if that is truly the case, then the first thing I have to recommend is a soil test because you need to know what's already there before you start adding to it. It can save you a lot of time and money and effort to just mulch your soils because most of our soils do have a good mineral content. But like she's saying, the the texture doesn't hold the moisture, but mulch will help that quite a bit. So before spending all that money to invest in compost, I would probably suggest a soil test. And those can be sent up to the CSU Soil Testing Lab. Our guest is CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Goday. She's here to answer summer gardening questions sent in by our listeners. Krista Kafer of Denver has a garden mystery. I let my carrots go to seed in the fall. What sprouted in the spring was wild carrot, also known as Queen Anne's Lace. How in the world did that happen? Well, that's really interesting. And the reason is that a lot of times our hybridized vegetables or hybridized annuals are created from two different parent plants, and the seeds do not come true to type. Unless they're like an open-pollinated or an heirloom plant, then you really have to have those two parents to cross, then you get the offspring and you get your delicious carrots. But the wild carrot, obviously not terribly delicious if even edible, and that's how it works. This is um, just a basic genetic question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mystery solved. That's good to know. Um, listener Sarah Rasmussen, she tweeted to ask, when should she cut down tulips? That's a great question because they do get really ratty looking this time of year and they're really distracting in our really pretty gardens. The thing to think about with Tulips and other bulbs in general is that while the leaves are green, they are photosynthesizing and they're storing all that energy in the bulb. So we don't want to cut them while they're green. But once they have started to yellow and even brown, then they're no longer 
very efficient or even photosynthesizing at all, and they're done storing for the year. And at that point in time, it's perfectly good to cut them down. And Sarah also wondered if there is a way to get rid of aspen suckers. So those are those little clone shoots that spring up from the aspen root system. You're right. And unfortunately, that is how an aspen reproduces. It's it sends up these clonal shoots from its root system. If you don't want aspen shoots, the best way not to have them is not to plant aspen. And I know that that's a hard thing to hear because we all love them so much, but they're not terribly suited to this elevation. They really need a higher elevation with cooler temperatures and more moisture to be healthy. And that's another reason they'll send up shoots too, is if they're stressed. Mm. Yeah. So no real way to have aspen trees without aspen suckers. Not really. Um, this is the time of year that a lot of people complain about having to mow lawns and having high water bills to keep the grass green. And some people even go to the extent of pulling out the grass and covering the area with stones. How do we make our lawns more manageable without ripping them out and starting over? That's a great question. And I had this discussion with a friend recently. There are a lot of reasons to have a lawn. Um, there's also a lot of pressure for people to pull out their lawns and put in vegetables or meadows. I do have a small meadow in my yard, and I'll tell you, it takes me more time than anything to maintain it and keep it weed-free. So there's a time and a place for a lawn, plus some of us have dogs, or we, maybe we just like that cool green space in a drier area. So to make your lawn more water-wise, the first thing to do is an irrigation audit. What is that? I know, it's really... It's, it sounds intimidating. It's kind of geeky, and it is a little bit at first, but you just take small low cans or low containers like yogurt tubs or a cat food container and you spread them out around your yard especially make sure you have them in areas that look a little yellow or dry areas that are really lush and then draw out so you know where they all are and then run your sprinkler system for 30 minutes then you go back with a ruler and you just measure the water in each one this will tell you where you're getting water and where you're not getting water. And people think, well, I've got a sprinkler system and I can see the water going everywhere. Every year when I do this, and I do this almost every single year, I find that something has gotten off kilter that needs to be adjusted. And that can be a simple turn of a rotor or maybe one of the sprinkler heads is just too low flow for the area it's in. So that's one of the things that we like to start with is an irrigation audit. But then remembering your maintenance routine. So aerating a lawn is really, really important because it allows water to percolate down into the soil instead of just sitting on the top. So this helps our lawns get water down lower and not evaporate so quickly. So the water doesn't evaporate so quickly. So we use our water much more effectively. And then we have to think also about mowing high because that helps keep our grasses shading the ground so that, again, the water doesn't evaporate so quickly. So mowing high, like letting grass be a little longer. A little longer, like three inches. So in our house, it's mow high and mow often. <laughs> and, and that really does help to keep a thicker lawn. It also helps choke out weeds. But it really does work to protect the roots of the grass plants that they are not always so stressed and needing so much water. And I have my own question. As an apartment balcony gardener, I'm growing some mint and basil and sage, and it is so dry here in Colorado that they need constant watering. So I'm wondering about self-watering pots. Are those a good option? You know, I've not worked with them, so I don't really know. But everything that I know about watering plants is that we water them thoroughly, and we let them get a little dry in between waterings, but 
you know, maybe to the point of a little wilt, but, you know, it's almost, it's hard to come home and see your plant just lying there across the side of the pot. It is. It is hard. <laughs> so I would consider trying one. And as long as the roots are not always sitting in water and they get a chance every so often to um, dry out, soil should feel like a, a well-wrung out sponge. That's how plants mostly like it. So making sure that your automatic waterer or your self-watering container doesn't keep them soggy should be good. Thank you so much for being here, Lonnie. Thank you. CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Bertha joins us seasonally to answer your gardening questions. When we come back, remembering a Colorado singer, songwriter, and virtuoso mandolin player. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Join me, Anne-Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado Public Radio podcast called On Something. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Now we remember a Colorado music icon, Jeff Austin. The singer and virtuoso mandolin player passed away this week after being hospitalized for an unspecified medical emergency. He was 45. Austin was best known on the jam grass scene as the frontman for Yonder Mountain String Band, one of the most acclaimed roots music groups in the country. One, two, three... It's straight into the west. Sun is rising behind. We're headed straight into the darkness. Austin was born in Arlington Heights, Illinois, an only child raised by a single mom. From a young age, he was a natural performer. He later attended the University of Cincinnati Conservatory of Music to study musical theater. That's when he found a different calling, as he told CPR News back in 2015. Something at that age, the combination of being away from home for the first time, being 18, knowing that I loved this musical theater. But then I was, you know, sneaking into like bars and stuff to watch bands play and going, man, this is cool. The interaction, the immediate exchange. If you're on stage and you say a line that the crowd loves, it's that immediate reaction. And something inside of me just started for the first time ever questioning, is musical theater really what I want to do? And then I went and saw Fish and stood there and just kind of went, oh, man. And then the question got bigger. And it got bigger and it got bigger. And, and I went on tour with the Grateful Dead. As uh, I was selling um, vegan tempeh pitas in the parking lot, <laughs> trying to figure out where my shoes were. And the question was growing huge in my mind. And I wasn't sleeping. And I said, Mom, I th- I'm going to go and see a bunch of Grateful Dead shows with a bunch of friends of mine. And if I get back and I still feel this way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop out. And she said, you need to do what I want you to be happy. And I can hear it in your voice. You know, you got to You get this chance once, you know. And I went on tour and I came back two weeks later and I remember going to the dorm and I sat in my room and I just went, I'm going home. Because I got to stand in these arenas and watch this band who I was really influenced by and just stand there and watch people's reactions and these floods of emotion. Mm -hmm. It was 
very clear. That was that. You ready? How you feeling? You ready? All right. Austin moved to Nederland, Colorado, taught himself the mandolin, and co-founded Yonder Mountain String Band in 1998. He parted ways with the group after 18 years to pursue a solo career. Austin was known for his playful stage presence, and a staple of Yonder's live shows was his impromptu scat singing and use of nonsensical lyrics. High country, Stella, Stella, Stella Brand, Stella, 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 and you can break it up. I thought, man, well, that was fun. And the crowd reacted to it. And that was just that uncaged beast at that point. I, it became one of my favorite things to do. Austin will be remembered not only as an electric live entertainer, but as a true songwriter with a passion for telling stories. I've always been fascinated with storytelling. You know, I was raised on a lot of kind of sketch comedy and stuff like that. And and the way that people could get in there and tell you a story that would either make you laugh or make you think or whatever. You know, I, I love comedians, people like Bill Hicks, and then you go to guys like George Carlin and this and that, and great storytellers. It's something that's always moved me. I have a strong belief that even if you've created a character and you write a song about them, you got to believe in them and you got to make them real in order to make people feel that. Truthfully, you can create the wildest character that you want, but if there's not a little bit of you in there, people are going to perceive it in a way that they might not really kind of invest in it and believe it's real. So many miles and so many roads So many people who don't even know my name So many times I've looked to western skies Nowhere I go is quite the same As that sweet home waiting for me At the end of the day When word got out about Austin's death, the Colorado music community responded with tributes and remembrances. We reached banjo player and Yonder co-founder Dave Johnston. I really hope that Jeff is remembered as a a steward of good times and a, a champion of the breakdown between audience and performer. There's a house somewhere I know where the fires burn all night long. There was a song that I wrote in the really, really early days uh, called Half Moon Rising. It ended up, all those years later, kind of becoming a song that people really liked. That was where I had my first experience where I was singing the song. The crowd was pretty big. I think it was on the West Coast. 
I remember there's a chorus and it goes, there's a half moon rising. And I came up to the chorus. I said, there's a, and 500 people just, bam, just right back at me sang the chorus. I thought I was going to cry. And then I, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? The last chorus, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to have them sing it. Because that's what I watched all the big famous people do on television. You know, That's what Elton John does. And so I stopped and they all sang it. And I just stood there and went, wow, that's so cool. Rising in southeastern skies There's a cold wind blowing across the great divide And the stars, they guide my way across the night There's a half moon rising Pushing me on over another mountaintop Push me on, no one ever stop Push me on There's a half moon rising in southeastern skies tonight Jeff Austin spoke with us in 2015. The beloved Colorado musician and founder of Yonder Mountain String Band died this week at age 45. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Avery Lil. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now the shoes on my feet, the soles are broken down, and my coat is tattered and worn. And the hunger in my belly 